In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. indeed found No Proscenium, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson. We've got another jam-packed show for you this week, which, like everything we do at No Pro, is brought to you by our amazing Patreon backers at patreon.com slash noproscenium. This week on the show, Ricky Briganti, one of the co-authors of the Immersive Industry Report that we've published over the last few years, brings us a special report on the business of immersive art experiences, featuring interviews with the teams at Super Blue, Wonder Spaces, Meow Wolf, and yes, Lighthouse Immersive, the producers of the Immersive Van Gogh Experience. Catherine talks with producer Lindsay Scoggin and digital artist Screaming Color about Welcome to Respite, the immersive theater piece staged in VR chat that debuted at Tribeca Immersive and which will be part of the Venice Film Festival this fall. And in two separate interviews, I check in with creative producer and no pro contributor Michaela Ternaski Holland about their adventures on the festival circuit this year and with David Markland of Midsummer Scream, Awaken the Spirits, the pop-up version of the annual Halloween convention, which this year will be at the Pasadena Convention Center, August 14th and 15th. Plus, Immersive 101 and the pick of the week. But there's too much to get to, so let's stop talking and get with the headlines. Hello, this is Catherine Yu, Executive Editor of No Proscenium, and here's what's in the Immersive Headlines for July 30th. A new report on cultural innovations during lockdown, news from Swamp Motel, Facebook pausing Quest 2 sales, the possible sale of a beloved theme restaurant to some unlikely buyers, and an unusual flyer campaign in Denver. First up, the results of a joint research project by UK Research and Innovation's Arts and Humanities Research Council, in collaboration with the Department for Digital, Culture, Media, and Sport, have just come out. The project Boundless Creativity examines the role of innovation in shaping cultural experiences during the pandemic. The results find that, quote, shows designed specifically for online media prove that platforms like Zoom can be viable performance spaces in their own right, end quote. Also in the UK, immersive company Swamp Motel, who you may know from their online alternate reality experiences like Plymouth Point, Mermaid's Tongue, and The Kindling Hour, have announced that they've secured a deal with Galmont UK to option the film and TV rights to their original IP. Over in the VR world, Facebook has temporarily paused sales of the Oculus Quest 2 through August 24th due to reports of serious eye and skin irritation from consumers. Existing owners can request a new facial cover for their headset from the tech giant. It should be noted that there are approximately 4 million units that are part of this voluntary recall. This is the first time Facebook has ever publicly mentioned the number of Quest 2 devices that have been purchased. Meanwhile, Facebook as a company continues to double down on their vision of a metaverse by bringing key folks over from Instagram as well as Facebook gaming into a new internal metaverse product group. Details are still fuzzy on what exactly they'll be building. The dance company Dazzle has recently launched Japan's first permanent immersive theater venue. Their show Venus of Tokyo invites participants to explore a large physical environment full of performers where it's impossible to see every storyline at once. The interactive show is running three times a day and is slated to continue through at least March 2022. 
Some news coming out of Denver. The creators of the TV show South Park have announced their intentions to purchase the famed entertainment venue Casa Bonita. Casa Bonita declared bankruptcy earlier this year. Some of the proposed improvements for the potential new owners include increasing the size of Black Bart's new cave and making the food better. But for the moment, any possible sale is in limbo due to ongoing court proceedings. And also in Denver, an unusual ad campaign is asking consumers to call a hotline and provide their used shrimp memories. That's right, used shrimp memories. It's all part of the lead-up to the opening of Meow Wolf Denver location later this year. Fans of the company also received a strange email asking them to save the date of August 3rd. So if you're in the Denver area and you happen to see something unusual, definitely let us know. And some news for Star Wars fans. Disney has dropped additional teasers around Galactic Star Cruiser, which will be opening spring 2022 at the Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando. In this intimate two-day, two-night cruise on land, guests will be fully immersed into the world of Star Wars during their stay. And in a brand new video, Disney Imagineers dropped some details around the dining and entertainment options, the new characters that guests may interact with while on board the ship, as well as ways the Galactic Star Cruiser experience ties in narratively to the existing land, Batu. And these have been your immersive headlines. Catherine will be back more than once later on in the show. And now that special report from Ricky Briganti. Immersive art experiences are a rapidly rising trend that bridges art and entertainment with an eye on for-profit business. Today, immersive art experiences are drawing more people than traditional art museums. There is no formula for these experiences. Every one is unique and somewhat undefinable. These experiences are hard to put together, but those that make it happen are incrementally building a new format and infrastructure for many new experiences to come. So are these art? Are they entertainment experiences? And what of that for-profit model that's redefining the art world? We recently chatted with a few of the companies that are making tremendous waves. I'm Ricky Briganti of Pseudonym Productions, and I'd like to take you inside the rise and future of immersive art experiences. It's likely that you first heard of immersive art in the same way I did, by way of Meow Wolf, the art collective turned startup that went on to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. Immersive art experiences seem to be as much art gallery as they are themed attraction, even if Meow Wolf doesn't entirely see it that way. Themed entertainment is art at a certain size. That's Corvus Brinkerhoff, executive creative director of Meow Wolf Las Vegas and one of the company's founders. A lot of themed entertainment is created with an intention to entertain and to make money off of that entertainment. You could also make something at the exact same scale with a different intention. We are business. We need to make money to continue our work, but we want to create something that's deeper and more meaningful. Both artistic intent and business savvy are required for these new types of experiences to work. And the majority of people across North America will have their first exposure to immersive art experiences by way of the sudden phenomenon that is the pop-up experience called Immersive Van Gogh. An immersive projection show is difficult to explain to someone who's never seen it. And one of the first things I say is, have you seen episode five of Emily in Paris on Netflix? Because that's shot from inside an immersive exhibit in Paris that was created by Massimiliano Ciccardi, who's created our show. That's Corey Ross, producer of Immersive Van Gogh and co-founder of Canadian company Lighthouse Immersive. I came to this, to to Massimiliano's work, by flying to Paris to to see his work there three years ago um, with no 
understanding of what it was that I was going to see. And I'd heard that it sold millions of tickets, and that appealed to me as a producer. I was perplexed as to what could have sold all those tickets with projected art in a city where you can go to the Louvre. Indeed, that new and different experience was the magic of immersive art, a combination of mediums and formats. It's part art exhibit, it's part short animated film, and then it's experiential in that you walk through the art. And so it brought these three things together into what, what feels to me like a completely new genre. And that new genre or category is what's making immersive art truly remarkable. The idea of a completely new way of experiencing something artistic is what this immersive world is all about. The Van Gogh experiences have increased Google search volume four to five times for the word immersive over the last few months. What Lighthouse has done is build an entire business around translating Van Gogh's work into a new format. What they've achieved is no small accomplishment. We've licensed 400 images of Van Gogh paintings from the greatest museums around the world. We have 500,000 cubic feet of projection space. A collaborator named Luca Longobardi has been creating the music for his shows um, over the years. But all of this is choreographed the soundtrack, and that becomes uh, a narrative uh, and becomes a piece of its own that ultimately is Massimiliano's artistic vision refracting off of Van Gogh's uh, pieces. But for immersive art experiences not based on the work of an already famous artist, curation is complex. In the case of Meow Wolf, installations have so far read to many visitors as a shared aesthetic of psychedelia. When we're making stuff, we're not like, okay, how do we make this psychedelic? You know what I mean? It's more that it's just part of the sort of soil that we are growing out of. Psychedelics as a set of aesthetics as a, a culture that has influenced all kinds of great art and music, it's undeniably beautiful. Other new businesses, such as Super Blue in Miami, have found ways to curate experiential art in ways more aligned with traditional galleries. We will be opening a global network of large-scale experiential art centers. That's Super Blue senior curator Kathleen Ford. And we'll primarily be commissioning new work, solo shows for these centers that goes into one of our locations, and then they rotate throughout all of our locations. Meow Wolf rose out of a scrappy art collective. Lighthouse Immersive arrived out of live theater. Super Blue's experiential art centers have been a long time in the making, deeply rooted in the art world. Wonder Spaces was born out of the idea that art experiences should be more social. We look at the role that the movie theater has played for generations and how it has become a, almost a default place for folks who, whether or not they have a deep relationship with art, to gather and, and share quality time with one another. That's Jason Shin, president and co-founder of Wonder Spaces. want to create that same convenience, accessibility, affordability, welcoming vibe that the movies have had for, for generations. Wonder Spaces thinks beyond visual art to offer other kinds of experiences in their venues. We're piloting right now a virtual reality film series in San Diego. We could build infrastructure and channels to deliver immersive theater. So as immersive art rolls out around North America, poised to become venues for many kinds of immersive experiences, what are the key draws and takeaways for audiences, especially when it comes to the debate of whether these are truly art experiences that offer meaning and depth, or are they purely escapist entertainment? Here's immersive Van Gogh's Corey Ross once again. There's the selfie people, and then there's people 
who watch this multiple times to absorb it. Sometimes people dance in the exhibit. Sometimes people cry. It's the wonderful thing about these immersive um, shows is that you can really experience them on, on multiple levels. Super Blue is developing ways to balance staying true to experiential artists' intent while also allowing their guests to have whatever experience they want. It's not for us to dictate or even to lay out to our audience. It's really for them to experience and feel. There are also those who are having a lot of fun running around Team Lab and being really enthusiastic and not everybody is, you know, going into a transcendental state. These new kinds of businesses feature a business model that's new to the art world, admissions, which is traditionally associated with entertainment experiences. There is, of course, a classic notion that art is something that's inherently not commercial. But these new for-profit models are enabling artists to focus on being artists rather than worrying about those financials. That's the theory for Superblue. Often these large-scale projects, artists are really barely getting their uh, the work covered. That's it's really it's very much about getting your hard costs covered to bring this artwork out into the world. And then often artists also have to create smaller-scale work that can be sold to support their art practice and their studios. This sort of comfort allows artists a safe space to really dream and explore their work. Wonderspace's Jason Shin notes the key lies in evolving business models that offer sustainability in this growing immersive industry. We listen very closely to the artists that we're partnering with, whether we're doing right by them. We listen closely to the, to the visitors who are coming to the show, whether we're of service to them. We listen very closely to our team on how we can improve to be a, an organization that takes care of our team. Doing better by that will be the measure of our progress tomorrow and I hope 10 years from now. But what about putting a price tag on the public domain work of a long-deceased artist like Van Gogh? Back to Corey Ross. I, I recognize that some people have a disconnect. They well, why is this so much money? Well, this is so much money because it costs millions of dollars to put these shows on. And we pay the artists that create them. Each of these installations, they cost between 4 and $10 million to install. It's a massive audiovisual installation. It's usually the transformation of a space that's a found space. And therein lies the rub, the necessary commercialization of art in order to produce what translates for many into an entertainment experience. Meowulf's Corvus Bringerhoff weighs in. Maybe Van Gogh is rolling over in his grave when uh, his work is appropriated in that way. And I think it's a valid critique. But I think more than we need to protect Van Gogh's intentions, we need to remember who we are and be connected to our creative essence. And if going to that Van Gogh experience is helping people connect with that, I think it's a beautiful thing. At Super Blue, it comes down to retaining meaning to go with the spectacle of it all. Spectacle is not necessarily a dirty word. If spectacle comes with substance. You know, I'm not opposed to the Instagramable moment if you're going to go to the dinner table with your friends and family afterwards and continue to talk about how the artists have affected perhaps the way you see the world around you. The power of immersive art is making art approachable to anyone, even if it's seen as entertainment. That's at the core of Wonder Spaces. We all know folks who would, when asked, are you an art person, would say, no, I have art friends, but I'm not an art person. By trying to serve everyone with extraordinary and accessible artwork, it can be for everyone. For Meow Wolf, it's about delivering the unexpected. The one thing we, we say is, uh, you know, sell them candy and, and give them medicine. We want to give people an experience that they expect to be entertaining. But when they get there, we want to give them something meaningful and hopefully powerful. 
So is immersive art just a fad, or does it truly have legs? Corey Ross offers his thoughts. I think who the artist is creating it will ultimately matter. It will start to be driven more by the artist than the simple concept of the genre. And just as music and movies have become part of our everyday lives, perhaps immersive art will too become part of our culture. That's where Meow Wolf sees this going. We live in a culture that loves to be entertained. We also live in a culture that I think has a deep, deep desire to know itself better. So is there a crossover? Is there a place in between those two worlds? You know, that's, that's something that we want to find out. And for now, at least, in true artistic spirit of collaboration, there is kinship forming among creators of immersive art experiences, says Kathleen of Superblue. We're not fierce competitors. I had coffee yesterday with the founder of Wonder Spaces. The Miawa folks have been down to Miami. Our leadership just visited their new space in Las Vegas. So we're all kind of um, really enjoying learning from one another. So if there's one clear takeaway from talking with these current leaders of immersive art experiences, it's that no one is making an easy buck on the backs of artists here. And that's our snapshot of one of today's rising immersive trends. On a later episode of No Persinium, we'll hear more from Super Blue's curators. And at Pseudonym Productions, we are creating a new content series that includes more immersive trend-watching pieces like this one and more fun looks at what makes this industry so unique and exciting. If you are interested in immersive art or have thoughts to add to this discussion, I would love to get your reactions. We're also developing some new immersive experiences of our own that we're really excited about, including integrating elements of immersive art into our own work. We're based in Philadelphia and are actively seeking partners to help us get our big ideas off the ground. Always happy to connect not only to other creators, but also producers, real estate developers, investors. The list goes on and on. So as we continue to shine a spotlight on this industry, please don't hesitate to reach out to me anytime at ricky, R-I-C-K-Y, at questionreality.com. Back to you, Noah. And we're back with another edition of Immersive 101. Joining us again this week is Catherine Yu, the executive editor of No Persinium. Hey, Catherine. Hello. So what do we have from our deck of esoteric terms we're trying to make <laughs> less esoteric for people who just haven't been doing this as long as we have, maybe? Well, I have, for you and everyone listening, one of my favorite terms that comes to us from the game design world, and that's the concept of the magic circle. Ooh. That's a, so are we, uh, are we summoning things this week? Is that what we're doing? Perhaps, do perhaps. Okay. <laughs> what's, uh, what's this magic circle you speak of? So this is, coming again, coming from the game design world, and it's thinking of conceptually a space where the normal, regular, everyday rules of the world are suspended temporarily and are replaced by new rules from an alternate or different reality. That is to say, hey, you're now somewhere else and everyone who is with you inside the magic circle is also agreeing to abide by whatever new rules are going to take place in the magic circle. So it's kind of drawing that line between here's the normal everyday real world and now I'm inside somewhere else. We're going to play make-believe and things are different here. That's a pretty rad way to think about <laughs> almost all the work that happens in immersive and experiential stuff. 
Yeah, and in physical immersive, uh, you used to have like uh, you know mysterious locations and check-ins, and you might go into an elevator, and you wouldn't know what was going to happen when you popped back out on the other side. Or in a digital immersive, uh, you might put on the VR headset, and now you're transported into a place where uh, you might be someone else. You might be doing something that you don't normally do. And again, the rules are different. Society's different. Maybe your goals are different. So it's also not just about the actual circle, but about, you know, sort of the act of crossing the circle that kind of makes the magic. So some sort of crossing of a threshold via a physical space or a mental transition helps people facilitate their suspension of disbelief. Because this is one of the things that's really important when you're doing an immersive experience is kind of letting go of the regular world and really focusing in on the fact that you are somewhere different. And that's suspension of disbelief. Well, this is an absolutely delightful way to think about and talk about this stuff. So Catherine, I'm so glad you brought up the concept of the magic circle this week. Awesome. My pleasure. Still to come, Catherine returns to talk with the Welcome to Respite team, Midsummer Screams' David Markland, the pick of the week, and more. Stick around. We're just getting warmed up. We've now reached that part of the show where we check in with our friends from around the Immersiverse. Joining us this week on the show is Michaela Tarnaski-Holland. They are an experiential creative producer with a specialty in XR and nonfiction social impact storytelling, and just so happen to be a longstanding contributor here at NoPro. We're always happy when Michaela can join us on the show or on the website. Michaela. How's it going? Hey, Noah. It's going pretty good. I mean, definitely in my world of XR and experiential, the work never stops, um, even throughout, you know, the Grand Panini. So I'm excited <laughs> to be here and I'm excited to, you know, conversate with you about some really cool stuff. You've been bouncing around the festival circuit this year. So, you know, what's turning your head on the festival circuit this year? That's a great question. As we know, this year is a little unique as everything is sort of in that weird in-between. So if I think about the start of this year and we think about Sundance in January, they really had to still stay in a virtual environment, in a virtual world. And I know you did an episode with uh, Sherry Freelo and just the amazing work Active Theory did on that platform. But when I think about projects, I think that the one that really stood out to me was Rich Kids, A History of Shopping Malls in Tehran, because the way they utilized the different platforms that were very accessible to the audience, they used YouTube, they used Instagram, and they switched back and forth between the platforms. And they really thought about the permanence of those platforms, as well as the impermanence of those platforms, and the way they played with the live features versus the posted features, the captions. It just felt to me felt like everything I had been trying to share with people about the extended reality or XR doesn't always have to have a headset and it doesn't always have to have a mobile device. It could be us just playing in the pre-existing landscape of digital reality by jumping back and forth amongst digital platforms that people are familiar with. So again, seamless onboarding, seamless ability to just jump into the performance or the experience and have a really robust 
interesting moment with those performers, even though it was a virtual festival. So I would say that's definitely number one on my list as far as our top three. Well, and yeah, I mean, Javad Alapur, who is uh, the the co-creator of that piece, just super sharp. We had one of those like rambling no pro conversations uh, that that ultimately leads to somewhere like amazing. What else has been turning your head? I know you were at Tribeca recently because you you produced a piece that was there. So I'm wondering if something caught your eye out at Tribeca Immersive this year, which was just packed full of stuff. Just to give the audience a little bit of context, you know, we moved from a January 2021 virtual festival into Tribeca actually pushing their original March-April dates that they usually have annually into June-July area because they knew that potentially by summer with the vaccine rolling out here in the United States, they would actually be able to do a hybrid experience. So what was cool about Tribeca was it still had its own physical storyscapes at the infamous Spring Studios where they've had it before, but then they had a whole lot of really cool online experiences available in sort of that hybrid format. Um, And so I would say one of my favorites that I got to do in person physically there with a headset, with a docent, with an actual sort of what I would say almost like a small mini set around me was the uh, Lovebirds of the Twin Towers. And I think that piece is so poignant because we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And the piece utilizes volumetric capture technology, like a couple depth kit sensors, and then overlays that into some digital environments. And the story itself is just incredible um, about two people who were both uh, working at the Twin Towers, met at the Twin Towers, decided to get married and commute together to the Twin Towers every day. And they used to have lunch by the old Twin Towers fountain. And then, of course, when 9-11 hit, they were both on shift, on duty working. And it took them three or four days to even realize that, thankfully, both of them had survived. Um And so it just sort of took you on this really interesting journey in virtual reality. And then it had a secondary component, which was post-experience, where you actually got to interface with one of the characters, the one who identified as a female of the two people married. And you actually got to ask her questions in real time, utilizing an AI technology. So the piece kind of left you wanting more. And so if you wanted to ask her things like, how did you get engaged to your husband? Or how did you and your husband, what did you and your husband eat for lunch? like you could go and then ask her those questions using sort of that story file hovering hologram vibe. So yeah, just a really great, amazing piece. And it definitely brought a little bit of tears to my eyes. And you mentioned this was happening at Tribeca in, in the hybrid mode. So I think that's been a big topic of discussion, particularly as we go into this next phase of the pandemic, which I believe is the hokey pokey where we turn ourselves around. Um, and. <laughs> That was a little too flippant. I'm, I'm, I'm so I have to say that it. was pretty genius, though. I might have to say, "Hey, Noah, can I can I license that content?" You know what? Creative Commons, uh, but attribution. So um, <laughs> that's for everybody. But uh, yeah, I'm I mean, I'm just so stressed out by like, well, are we are we masking? Are we not masking? And it's so difficult as a as an event producer to figure out what are we supposed to do? So how did that work out for, for Tribeca this year, this hybrid thing? I have to say, you know, some of my conversations with Lauren and even being able to see people from Germany and from uh, Florida be able to fly into town and be a part of the festival, there was something really special about being in person and like, you know, making sure everyone was vaccinated and things like that. 
but I felt it was fairly successful hybrid-wise in person. Now, when we start to look at some of the virtual side of the experience, you know, it's very easy to stream movies on demand. So the film side and even the podcasting side, I think, was very successful. The sticky point right now with XR and being able to be virtual in XR is that a lot of these pieces are still very reliant on PC-powered headsets and larger builds. The Quest is just such a pain to develop for that most people are still developing for the Rift or for the HTC Vive. And in that way, most of those festival exhibitions take place on something called the Museum of Other Realities. And while that's really wonderful, it just isn't very accessible to the wider audience. I'm not even talking about the wider public, Noah. I'm talking about the press. I'm talking about VIPs. The whole point of a festival strategy from a producer's perspective like my own is to be able to get momentum for the piece. It's to be able to either find more funding, find more distribution opportunities, find partnerships. And so that sticky point of being kind of embedded into the Museum of Other Realities is most of those people, most of those types of people don't necessarily have a, he- a tethered headset, one with a PC powerful enough, one with a headset powerful enough to access the content. And me and my team at Tribeca actually flagged that fairly early on. And then we found sort of a workaround for that, which I'm happy to, to get into if you want me to transition into sort of almost my third idea around this whole segment. Yeah, let's 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 drop in because you had you had a piece there. Uh, and so, yeah, talk a little about, you know, what you addressed, how you addressed that. Yeah. So the immersive arcade, again, was fully in the Museum of Other Realities and only like four or five pieces were able to get space at Storyscapes. Totally understandable. Physical real estate is expensive. And in COVID, it becomes even more expensive because of six foot distancing. And what my team and I flagged early on was that we were worried about our piece sort of living and dying in the Museum of Other Realities graveyard. So The first thing we did was we figured out a way we could do a very seamless desktop version workaround of the experience, which we were able to quickly come up with using a platform called Verse, which is an interactive video platform that supports 360 filmmaking. So if we had press who were enjoying the virtual festival or funders that were enjoying the virtual festival but didn't have access to tethered headsets, we had a way of sending them a singular link. They just needed to be connected to Wi-Fi and they could get a version or an exported sort of packaged version of the POV points of view experience. But for us, we still wanted to elaborate on the physicality, Um, especially here in New York. It's over 80% vaccinated. Things are very much slowly but surely opening back up. So we took a page out of Lance Weiler's book from where there was smoke a few years ago when he participated in a off-site installation with a company called Wallplay. And we decided that we would do an off-site sort of installation of POV. And we worked with a community, uh, sorry, an organization called Brick because we really wanted to target the Brooklyn-based community. So Brick is a Brooklyn-based organization with an amazing ballroom. And so we actually set up, I think, over 12 headsets, both a passive and an active volumetric version of the experience. And then after people were able to come through the door, again, free and open to the public with some slots already reserved for VIP and, and press, we were then giving them an iPad-based experience that allowed them to kind of give us feedback on their thoughts around implicit biases and around drone surveillance technology. But then we focused a really hyper-reality, almost alternate reality, hyper-local focus on Amnesty International's decoders platform. So you go into this big, amazing VR experience. It's about the future of surveillance technology. It's about 
drones, it's about artificial intelligence, it's about implicit bias. As you come out of that, you then realize, you know, surveillance technology actually still exists in our world. How can I get involved in playing a role? And the Amnesty International has this really cool decoder platform that is mapping all the surveillance cameras in New York City. So we really focused on a hyper-local call to action, as we call it, in social impact for those audience members coming and enjoying the physical festival or the physical screening of POV with us. And so while maybe I'm a little bit biased towards my own piece or my own production, I do think that was a really interesting take that we did outside of Tribeca because Tribeca, most people could get really intimidated by the idea of buying a ticket and going to Tribeca. And I think, again, being right there in the Brooklyn-based community with a Brooklyn-based organization, I think it helped sort of release the intensity of what going to a film festival or going to a festival could or should be to somebody. And again, making it free made it also that next level of accessible, which was important because our piece wasn't about being at Tribeca. Our piece is about making social impact and raising awareness about surveillance technology. So yeah, that's the long-winded answer to your question, Noah. You packed a lot in there, though. So, uh, you know, length is uh, is completely a matter of, of perception. I want to note, though, kudos to Tribeca for, you know, allowing the external stuff to be happening because, you know, there's also a universe where the festivals get very covetous of who gets to see what and when and, and how much people get to interact. And I know there was Storyscapes and, and Tribeca Immersive as a whole seems to be doing a pretty good job of kind of creating touch points for folks beyond the festival community to be interacting with the pieces that are being highlighted and honored by the festival. So that's kind of a trend that I see a lot of film festivals, cultural festivals kind of moving towards. I feel like the more of that, the merrier, um, particularly because in a world where content's just constantly being blasted at us all the time, the, the festivals sort of start to fill a different role than marketplace, and they start to really fill a role of being where we focus our intention on the things that matter. A thousand percent. I mean, I, of course, we could probably just have done a whole segment about Tribeca, which I believe you already did. But, you know, pieces like Brianna's Garden and Untold Stories, where you were physically there at Battery Park and all you needed was a phone and scan a QR code. And now you're in an augmented reality version of the experience. Like, I think Tribeca actually really embraced the idea that things need to be outside. And by things being outside, they became more accessible. And so instead of keeping everything inside the walls of Storyscapes, Tribeca really embraced the idea of let's use the New York City as our backdrop to our festival. And I just, I mean, New York City is the first love of my life, but the backdrop, I would say, was probably pretty perfect. (laughs) All right. Well, Michaela, uh, how can folks uh, keep up with your work? Oh, great question, Noah. So people can keep up with my work via my website, Michaela Ternaski Holland. It's just the way my name is spelled, .com. They can sign up for my newsletter that I have. I send out like a monthly update of things I'm working on. I also post regularly to my Instagram, which is also just my name, at Michaela Ternaski Holland. And if anyone ever wants to reach out just for a chat or for consulting or for creative strategy, you can always find me at hello at MichaelaHolland.com. And all of that's super readily available, I believe, on my LinkedIn, on my Instagram. So it's not very hard to find me, which I think is a good thing. 
Well, we'll definitely put something in the show notes if people want to reach out. Michaela, thank you so much. I know we could talk forever, so I'm gonna I'm gonna spare <laughs> I'm gonna spare everyone else. Uh, we'll probably spend like the next ten or fifteen minutes doing so. All right, catch you next time. Thanks, y'all. Thank you, Noah. I'm David Spira from RoomEscapeArtist.com, and I'd like to invite you to our immersive gaming convention, Recon, the Reality Escape Convention. Recon is being held digitally this year, August 22nd and 23rd, and has programming and games for players, creators, and the immersive gaming curious. Basic access includes all of the talks as well as our ARG, and that ticket is pay what you want. Players should consider buying a Game Pass for access to tons of gaming content, much of which is only available through Recon. Those in the industry, adjacent industries, or are thinking about getting involved should pick up a pro ticket for access to live workshops, facilitated discussions, and other perks. This event is a labor of love, and we fuss about all of the details, from the featured talks down to our swag. I hope that you'll join us to learn and play. You can learn more at realityescapecon.com. everyone. This is Catherine Yu, the executive editor of No Persinium, and I am delighted to have some members of the Ferryman Collective here with me today. Uh, why don't you introduce yourselves? Lindsay, why don't you go first? Hi, my name is Lindsay Scoggin. I am an immersive theater designer and experiential storyteller, and I am actually from Coact Productions, who has been working with Ferryman Collective on the show Welcome to Respite in Virtual Reality. And Christopher, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, or shall I say, aka Screaming Color? Hi there. Uh, my name is Christopher. I go by as an artist. I go by Screaming Color, and I am part of the Ferryman Collective. And I am their special effects and animations designer. And I've also been working on the music as well. Awesome. So uh, very recently, y'all premiered a show with live actors in VR chat called Welcome to Respite. It made its debut at the Tribeca Film Festival as part of the immersive programming. For either of you, uh, what is Welcome to Respite? Tell us about it. Well, Welcome to Respite is a story about a child named Alex, and our main audience member actually gets to step into the shoes of that character and go back into a childhood memory of when they returned home to their family. And um, in this memory, they're kind of experiencing these beautiful moments that are happening with their parents and kind of retouching of, of what it what it's like to be in a family and who these parents are and learning more about themselves as they go along. But they find during this journey that there's something kind of dark lurking underneath the surface and um, kind of re-experience these or are haunted by these traumas that have happened to them. And the story was designed off of dissociative identity disorder and uh, yeah, we really focus on 
kind of the mental health aspects there and the way that trauma can affect you, especially as somebody who doesn't know or understand what's going on. So, Lindsay, um, can you talk a little bit about the way that you're treating such a serious topic when it comes to mental health, DID, um, how it plays a role in that story? So it was really important to us that we were respectful about a disorder that is often very stigmatized in media. There's a lot of movies and stuff about dissociative identity disorder, as, or as most people know it, multiple personality disorder. And as we were looking into it, we realized that it was really rather misrepresented and that there's so many beautiful and fascinating things about this disorder that highlight the human brain and the coping mechanism that it is. And we really wanted to focus on that. And rather than demonizing something that is already misunderstood, we really wanted to create a story that was much more about healing and the way that these personalities work together to come to a place of healing. So Welcome to Respite was chapter one of, it's it's going to be a multiple part series. And it was a really exciting way to explore the disorder um, because we wanted it to, to, in putting people in the shoes of Alex, we offer this opportunity for them to empathize with the situation of another person that is something that they could never otherwise understand. Um, but yeah, we, we definitely wanted it to be a story about healing. And from what I understand, this in its previous incarnation was an immersive theater experience, IRL, a, a physical experience for just one person at a time. Maybe you could both talk about the process of translating this into a medium like virtual reality, and the kind of things you can do in VR that you can't necessarily do in real life. Starting with the second half of the question first, that's one of the things that is so exciting about immersive VR theater is you can do anything that you can even possibly conceive of doing. Uh, you know, and when the show is done in real life, you know, you can't just change out the entire set, you know, tell the actor, okay, close your eyes for 10 minutes, we're going to change the set, open them up. You know, in this, we can... um take the walls out from away from you and suddenly you'd be floating in space. Um, and that's one of the, one of the cool things about it. As far as the audience goes, as far as what being in VR gives us the power to do something that's cool, you know, in traditional VR theater or sorry, in, in, in traditional immersive theater, you know, the, the tables might be, the chairs might be lined against the outside of the room or something. But in this, um, the audience members are invisible, meaning they can, see the show from any angle they want. They could practically watch the entire show through Alex, our main character's eyes, if they wanted to do that. Yeah. Um, translating this to virtual reality was a really interesting experience for me. I was the only member of the team who had worked on the IRL production. And what made the original show so fantastic was this intimacy that you had with the the characters it really was about you and though it doesn't offer as much agency maybe as some shows or like branching storylines or anything like that the connection was real people were like to our actors afterwards hi mom hi dad when they would see them and and it was really touching that everything was just surrounding this one person and it was a great show to do in real life and we wanted to be able to bring that intimate connection into virtual reality. And in doing that, we found that 
translating that through <laughs> an avatar is maybe not exactly the easiest thing to do. And thankfully, we had actors on our team that had worked in previous virtual productions and at least um, were able to bring experience to the table in that way in order to have these characters emote. I think when we were looking at that, we knew it wouldn't be as strong in that aspect as it was in the real life production. But we did know that virtual reality, as Screaming Color said, is really, really amazing for as a storytelling platform. And we wanted to do the magical things in the virtual reality version that we couldn't have possibly pulled off in real life. Yeah, I think I think we did a, our development team did a great job accomplishing that Topher with his music and his animations really bringing that to life and the special effects and everything. So hats off to them on on making sure that that we utilize the platform to its well, fullest. First off, I'm going to start introducing myself as Topher during these interviews because that's what you guys tell me to and it's going to get that's what y'all call me if it's going to get confusing if I don't. So one of the coolest things about uh about what we've done here is um, that that you can only do in VR is the height difference. So, you know, you, the, the person playing Alex is the height of a seven-year-old kid. And so the whole show, you're looking up at your parents, like, and you just, you can't do that in real life unless you have them on their knees the whole time or something, you know what I mean? So that's been one of the really cool immersive aspects of this. One person who's in the show gets to see everything through Alex, kind of the height of a seven-year-old child, and the parents and all the sets seem larger than life. But there's also another interesting aspect in that there's kind of invisible spectators in the room with Alex and the actors, and it's not like they're entirely powerless. So if you could talk a little bit about the people who are in the experience with the Alex character but don't necessarily have like a body in VR. In the original production, we didn't have this opportunity to have more than one audience member since the story does revolve around just Alex. But um, in virtual reality, there's this magical thing that can happen where we can make these people invisible. And we do, you know, let people know that that's going to be more of a spectator role. But of course, we wanted them to be able to be a part of the story as well. Um, their presence should be important and meaningful. So we kind of cast them as the alters or as referred to with the the disordered alternate personalities or alternate states of consciousness to kind of fit them into the story there. And so alters have many different kinds of roles within a personality system. And in this, we really wanted to give them a more hopeful version of that. and allow them to be protectors of Alex. So we have we have a character that shows up throughout the story and um, we call it the shadow. And this, this represents Alex's trauma that they may have experienced kind of manifesting as this monster, um, like a child would see, like the monster in the closet kind of thing. And at the times where this character is appearing to Alex, that the altars have opportunity to protect them. And we wanted to gamify that, give them something to touch and put their hands on. They also get to see what we are calling memory triggers around the house. So they can walk around the house and as they're observing pictures or a coffee cup or the stove that they're cooking at with mom, that 
that they are seeing words come up and they give a little more insight into the thoughts that Alex might be having or some of the history of the family and stuff like that. So there are these fun little Easter eggs for our spectators to find. And yeah, of course, we wanted them to uh, be able to have some part in it. (laughs) I went through the show as Alex. And then in speaking to a friend later, it turned out that she had seen memories and content and stuff that I wasn't able to see. So it seems like uh, you could actually go through this experience more than once. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely value to the spectator experience. I mean, the Alex experience, that is our premium ticket. And there's there's no replacement for the story being centered around you and getting the direct interaction and feeling the love directly from the characters and having them respond. But I think one of the cool, the coolest things about being an altar is that you can really view it from any angle. It's like getting to almost watch a play or a live movie happening in front of you and you can see it from any angle. Or at the end, the parents are speaking out in the hallway. You're allowed to go watch their conversation happen, something that Alex might be able to hear, but only you can see. And because you're invisible, that means when we sell tickets to this, if, you know, the premium experience is something that you don't have access to um, or can afford or something, that it wouldn't matter. If you stick your yourself in the place exactly where Alex is, you'll you'll get to see it from that first person perspective. So it really offers some interesting ways to experience it that you wouldn't be able to get with a just being Alex. Awesome. Well, it looks like we are running out of time here. And um, Topher, Lindsay, if that's all right with you, uh, if you want to stick around for the post-show conversation hang, um, that would be awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. Cool, cool. All right. Well, thank you both so much for taking time to speak with me today. Uh, Anything that you want to plug real quick right now? Um, If you guys would like to learn more about Welcome to Respite, you can go to www.welcometorespite.com, sign up for our mailing list to find out information on tickets. You can hear the rest of Catherine's conversation with Lindsay and Topher, including the exact moment that they got some pretty big news as part of our backer-only podcast feed via Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash no proscenium. That's where you can join folks like our two latest Immersonauts, Amanda Albrecht and Cami Pinto, who joined at the $5 level and unlocked that podcast feed and our backer-only video collection, including videos from this past March's Spring Fling and our Publicity 101 for Immersive Creators workshop. There's more where that came from. Every Wednesday night, the No Pro Review crew meets in our Discord to discuss their latest adventures and misadventures in the Immersiverse as a kind of audio partner to the weekly Immersive Review rundown on the site. That whole discussion can be found just one stop back on the podcast feed. But on Wednesday nights, that's also where the crew makes their case for what should be the coveted pick of the week. And this week, the best case was made by... 
Hi there, this is Blake Weil, East Coast Curator at NoPro. Blake, this is the second time you've made the case and won Pick of the Week. Uh, so so not a, not a two-week returning champion, but like the most crowned of the crew so far. Uh, what, made, uh, what made the cut this week? This week, the cut was made by Journey to the Kingdom of Hypnos by Spectacle and Mirth. This was a pretty spectacular pod play that uses immersive audio and Greek mythology to explore themes of memory and the adult relationship to sleep. Maybe you're not getting as much sleep as you like. I know that I'm not. And it really walks a delicate line between giving you enough tangible details to hold on to on this guided journey through the underworld, but also leaving a lot of room for imagination and you to fill it in with your own dreams, which ends up kind of looping back around and being pretty thematically resonant. And at the end of the day, the thing that I gotta say that I loved the most about it was how cared for I felt the entire time. It really does a spectacular job of making you feel like you're being brought along a journey by gentle, loving hands. And as a midday snack of a piece, it was really refreshing. That's a pretty compelling case. Anything else that makes it pick of the week material? Other than that, uh, other than me being a huge Greek mythology nerd as well, (laughs) um, and the fact that the underworld's having a moment between this Hades and Hades town... I would say that the music really elevates it. Uh, Spectacle and Mirth has done a lot of kind of immersive musical and audio-based productions, and this one incorporates some original songs that are very modern in their construction. They use a lot of synth. Their lyrics have this kind of flowing modernist quality to them, but at the same time, As someone who has never heard ancient Greek religious music, it sounds like exactly what I think that would sound like in my imagination after years of old swords and sandals pictures. So that really elevates it a few more notches for me. All right. Well, uh, I believe this piece is... uh going to be wrapping up really soon at least in its initial run uh so people just have maybe like one more day to check it out if they can uh we'll put all that in in the show notes blake uh thanks for stopping by with the pick of the week this week thanks for having me and uh fingers crossed for a revival really loved this one We're joined by David Markland of Midsummer Scream, someone who we like to check in with every year to see what's going on in the haunt universe. David, how's it going here in July as we approach Awaken the Spirits? Uh, The good news is it's going. Uh, (laughs) It's great. We weren't sure what was happening this year, I think, with everybody else. So I'm glad that even though we're not fully through the pandemic, at least we can get out and about. For those who are listening outside of Southern California or who maybe are part of our XR community uh, and so not up on all the, the live action stuff, just what in a normal year is Midsummer Scream? Midsummer Scream uh, started in 2016 and uh, had it 
that year all the way up until 2019. Um, and it's it grew from uh, a it's a Halloween and horror convention, which to me with the Halloween side, it means it, it's not just about horror films and horror icons. It really is about people who love to do everything from carve pumpkins to make haunted houses, kind of like lifestylers who love to like sort of celebrate vibes of that holiday year round. We also, Midsummer Scream itself features, we have over a dozen haunted houses that are set up just for the weekend in one of our darkened halls. The show itself is is massive. I can confidently say it's the, as a horror convention, it's probably the largest in terms of scale in the world, uh, in terms of audience possibly too. Um, and, uh, but, but it's, you know, it's a Halloween convention for sure. It covers over a quarter million square feet with over 300 vendors and along with like three or more stages with entertainment panels and presentations, live performances. Uh, we've had spook shows uh, recreated in them. We've had, you know, acapella groups do it, you know, that kind of evoke the haunted mansion, grim grinning ghost song vibe and classes and education for people on how to do everything from learn Wicca to learn how to make a haunted house or make props. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of stuff, but, uh, it's for anybody who who likes Halloween and whatever that means to them, because Halloween is such a broad term, we we have plenty of stuff for them to do. Of keen interest to the immersive community in Los Angeles, aside from the the, the support you've shown by bringing creators of, of the immersive horror events onto your stages and hosting panels, and like I've been honored to host panels a couple of times and, and be on them. The, the Hall of Screams, which is where those haunted houses are set up, is is really something special. And like the event usually takes place in August. So like right about now, you'd be you'd be knee deep in floor plans and trying to figure out how to fit this all together. Right. Yeah. I mean, point of correction, it's the Hall of Shadows, which does. Hall of Shadows. Which, oh my which God. is okay. a Hall of Screams. So you're not wrong. Yes. Um, it, That's right. It's. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean. Actually, our event this year was supposed to be uh, a little earlier than usual. We try to get it to take place at the end of July because that tends to be when the big haunted attractions are looking to start promote uh, what they're doing for the year. And we want to really support that as much as we can. So usually about, yeah, I mean, our our planning is year round, um, but we have haunters that are doing stuff in the Hall of Shadows. Anybody who's building anything is communicating with their team, you know, starting to send them plans, you know, six, seven months ahead of time. And, uh, you know, but three months out, they have to pretty much have everything locked down in terms of what they're building if they're not close to being finished. Because uh, for them, you know, it's a lot of, it's labor of love. And so they're building this stuff in their backyards and then they have to bring it on site and build it in over the course of two normal days. And that's it. And it's there for the weekend. But yeah, I mean, for us, typically like, honestly two or three weeks out we we must we should have gotten everything done logistically you know everything knocked down nailed down so it's sometimes that last three weeks uh is is relatively smooth sailing it's all about promotion at that point and just making sure that we're filling up you know all the seats between the six and three three to four month mark out like it's non-stop prep for those who haven't been it is something special going through that convention hall 
you know, everything's dark. You, 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 at a certain point, you start to feel like you are outside in the grooviest, spookiest neighborhood in Southern California that only exists for like a few days. What, you, you know, the, the event this year's build us a pop-up. So what is Awaken the Spirits going to be? When, well, we didn't think we, you know, as of like, I think it was April or May, we basically, we knew that we didn't have time to do our main event. Uh, so we didn't think anything was going to happen this summer. And then we just, I think it was in early June, we just cast a, a quick last second net out. Like, could we do something that's super scaled back, but it's still fits one of our main missions, which is to promote the Halloween and haunt industry in Southern California and um, Pasadena Long Beach Convention Center. They're like crazy busy with, um, you know, rescheduling events on their, you know, that were supposed to take place even before ours. They have the Grand Prix and they're also doing a lot of COVID vaccinations. So they didn't really have a space for us that kind of worked, but Pasadena happened to. And uh, it's a gorgeous venue. It is much smaller. So, for a number of reasons. So there's no Hall of Shadows, which is a bummer. But we do have, you know, two stages of content where, you know, Halloween Horror Night, Six Flags Magic Mountain, Delusion, LA Haunted Hayride, and several other haunts are going to come and give a talk about what they have planned for this year in a behind the scenes look at kind of how they do what they do. So we kind of have, we're still fitting our mission, but uh, it's that's why we're calling it a pop-up. We don't want to say it's small because it's for it's it's at the Pasadena Convention Center. So, and we're we're filling up the place. Um, so we're like pop-up's a good term, <laughs> and uh, the the show floor itself is going to have two hundred vendors and coming in. So it's going to be very much the same vibes as Midsummer Scream, but you know without a lot of the the immersive and performances stuff that take you know, months and months to prepare that just couldn't happen. I mean, there, you know, even just a couple of months ago, we didn't know if delusion was going to happen or if hollow, you know, Halloween nights was going to happen. Like it's, I mean, it's still a moving target. I mean, to to that point, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll cover the dates of of Awaken the Spirits because I noticed we haven't mentioned it yet. We'll do that before we leave, you know, to that point, you know, LA County just changed the rules again, just, just a few days ago as of this recording. Uh, so how are y'all navigating that? Because <laughs> it's it's got to be maddening to be producing under these conditions. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think early on, we kind of accepted the idea when we announced it, we weren't out of a mask mandate. So we kind of were like, if there's still a mask mandate, can we do it? Like, as long as people can go inside, yes. We were really excited when the uh, mask requirement was dropped. And then when it popped back up, it was like, all right, you know, we're kind of back where we thought. So, you know, I think the important thing for people is they just want to get out and do stuff. And the mask is a frustration, but it's not, it's not too much of a deterrent. You know, I'm sure a couple of people just won't want to do it as a result. But I think, you know, right now we've already sold out, you know, probably 80% of the show. So I, it's not going to have too much of an impact. And, and recording this about a week before the this drops. Yeah. So quite possibly by the time this drops, the show it, will be It could sold be out. sold out. You know, always look because people sometimes they, you know, we've had a more liberal uh, ticket return policy than in the past. Usually it's no refunds. But because we know we don't want people to like be worried about their health or something to come up because of health reasons and for yeah. them not to feel like they can uh, get out. So we um, up until two weeks before the event, at least we we're providing refunds to anybody. So sometimes tickets will pop up again for some of those closed out 
dates as a result. But um, but speak but more specifically with you know the pandemic situation, yeah, we're, it's something we're keeping an eye on, and uh, you know we we're actually under the city of Pasadena's health department, which is you know they tend to follow LA County's lead uh, often, but not always. So if anybody's like trying to see what's going on with this event and like health restrictions, they should look up the city of Pasadena's health department because that's who who we're following you know to a T and. We've said all along we're going to follow the the local guidelines um, and enforce those. So to to keep us from ending on you know the the, the never ending bummer of pandemic, which is it's important that we look at that. Uh, what are you looking forward to the most out of uh, out of the the weekend to come? I mean, I I'm going to give specifics, but definitely just getting this crowd back together. You know, there's been all there's been a number of great vendor pop-ups that have happened with uh, the, for, for the spooky community. And so those have been fun to go to, but nothing on this scale. And so to see all of our friends again, is just going to be great. And um, people who are part of this community and they come in, they know it's a very welcoming uh, group of people and everybody just loves the vibe. They love the Halloween vibes, which we're hoping to evoke. But more specifically, um, I'm really excited uh that Halloween Horror Nights is with us again, but they're also, I don't know how much I can reveal even at this point, but they are bringing in an activation, uh, which which will give them a taste of Halloween Horror Nights. And so that's the first time we've had them do something, uh, you know, on our show floor of that scale. That's pretty cool. And then, you know, we have um, a couple of different unique presentations. We have one uh, with the production crew from 13 Ghosts, doing a 20th anniversary talk that's on Saturday. And then on Sunday, I'm especially excited because we're doing a talk with the voice and motion capture cast from Resident Evil Village. We haven't done a video game specific panel yet. And this is a great one to start it with because it's such a popular game and it, it is a, it's a pretty scary game. And it kind of, it's, it's a video game, so it's not a movie. It's, it's like an, it's an interactive experience, kind of like a haunt, but you know, from the safety of your home. Oh yeah. And, and village got a lot of people excited about resident evil again this yeah. year. So David, uh, we know it's at the Pasadena convention center. When are the dates if people want to try to snatch up some of those last few tickets? It's Saturday, August 14th and Sunday, August 15th. David Marklin, thank you so much for jumping here onto the show and looking forward to seeing you in Pasadena. Yeah. Thanks for having me. There you have it. We have reached the end of the No Persinium podcast for July 30th, 2021. A big thanks to everyone who was involved in the show this time. Uh, Check it out. Uh, Everything we do is at nopersinium.com. And we also have our sister site, everythingimmersive.com. That's a searchable site. Uh, It means the world to us when you share what we make. Um, the big important stuff is this podcast, the review rundown, which comes out each week, uh, the call sheet when it comes out. Uh, I, I feel awkward and strange asking people to share. It's something I don't, I don't love doing, but after trying everything else from pure stoicism to Facebook ads, 
nothing works like people sharing it. So uh, whether you already back us on Patreon or you just like what we do, but don't see yourself going that route, please, please, please share what we make. Uh, It helps build not only a bigger audience for us, but for everyone you've heard on the show today and all the work that is to come. And if you're someone who makes work, it just might help you one day as well. So keep that in mind. Um, yeah, I'm not going to go on for too long because this has been a long episode for us in the new format. We've been doing this for just about a month in the new shape. If you like it, please let us know if you don't like it and wish we went back the other way. Please let us know. Uh, this new format takes a lot of work. I'm not looking to abandon it, but I know that, uh, you know, if people aren't enjoying what we're doing, then why put in all the effort, uh, as fun as it is to make a show that sounds like this. All right. That's enough of that for now. We're going to jump right into the credits. First off, I have to thank the sustaining backers of No Persinium, Ari Herstan, Brittany, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Emily Gillette, Lonnie Hanson, Paul Fernell, Mark Balthazar, Samuel Mustry, Sidney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Thank you all, some of you who've been with us for years, making the pursuit of this wild dream possible and keeping a roof over my head in Los Angeles Yowza. All right. Um, Patreon.com slash no proscenium. If you would like to join their number, I know I'd like you to. Also want to give a big thanks this time to Ricky Briganti of Pseudonym Productions and a shout out to his partner, Sarah, for loaning him out to us. Ricky taking on the whole kit and caboodle of the A story this week really took the pressure off your old host producer here and let me get a wee bit ahead on other work and things that are unrelated to the making the podcast. So next week it's right back into it. Uh, the associate producer of the podcast is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. A special thanks to Shivana Lachlan for voicing our intro. Catherine Yu is the executive editor over at No Pro. The No Pro podcast is written, edited, host, produced, and mixed, except, of course, for the A Block this time, by yours truly, Noah Nelson. Next week on the show, uh, we've done some shuffling around. But now is when we're going to catch up with the folks at Little Cinema Digital, uh, who were nominated for an Emmy this uh, month. I said, um, because uh, when you get to the show, it'll be August. It will have been the prior month. I can't believe August is right around the corner. Can you believe August is around the corner? Me neither. All right. Until next time. I'll see you at the show.